0: Welcome back to the podcast, my friends. Thank you for tuning in once again. Uh, I am exhausted, (laughs) and I'm feeling a little under the weather, if uh, you can't tell. Um, I've been contending with allergies for about a week now, and although I may not sound like it, I assure you I'm feeling a lot better than I was this time last week, so uh, no need to worry. And uh, I I apologize again for for the way I sound today. Very out of character for me, but I actually watched the Super Bowl last night. Uh, the whole game it was a it was a good, exciting game to watch. Uh, both teams were really, really well matched against each other, and they both played really good games. Um, I personally was rooting for Kansas City because it's uh, you know my little brother's favorite team, and uh, so I, I just wanted him to to have that pride of his favorite team winning the Super Bowl. But uh, the Eagles played a really good game. Uh I enjoyed watching it. I think I guess this was the best season I could have picked for getting into football and actually watching the Super Bowl for the first time because it was a really good game. Uh so hopefully maybe next year my favorite team will be in the Super Bowl and I'll give you one guess as to who my favorite team is. Uh let me know what you think. Um but I hope you all uh, if you got a chance to watch it I hope you enjoyed it. Um lots of stuff other than the Super Bowl's been happening lately. I saw an article that uh uh Trying to think of the headline. It was from the Hill, and it said if uh, the message was that if Biden does not run for re-election in 2024, then the Democrats can rest assured that um, either Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris will be the nominee next time. So that's exciting, right? Who knows? Maybe they saw that it was Biden's third time running for president in 2020, so they're both thinking, "Oh, third time must be it." Well, we got this. We can do it. Um, I think that the article was actually citing a poll that says it pointed to Democratic voters wanting either Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris as the nominee if Biden doesn't run for a second term. To which my response is it must have been that it was just Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton answering that poll just using different email addresses, you know. Uh, to To kind of fluff them around. That's the only way that that could have happened. Uh, yeah. Uh, needless to say, I am not very happy with the Democratic Party right now. Uh, haven't been for a while. I think I've probably made that apparent in some of the comments I've made on previous episodes and posts on social media. And I got to say, this doesn't really help my frustration. You know, it's it's not like Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris had anything to do with publishing this poll, but Um, when you look through history, when you look at how the DNC and the uh, leadership of the Democratic Party has treated more progressive candidates running national campaigns or running campaigns in districts or states that are too risky to run in as a progressive, um, you start to be really, really upset with how the Democrats have intervened in that way. And I say all that to say that I don't think that Biden, Harris, or Clinton are very strong candidates at all. And that's just my opinion. You can agree with it or disagree with it. It's just, they're, as candidates, I don't think any three of them are very strong right now. And in all honesty, I have been toying with the idea of leaving the Democrats to register as an independent because that is more accurate of a description of who I am politically, I think, but and I and I have a lot of friends who are registered as independents who support left-leaning policies, but who are just fed up with how hypocritical at times and disappointing as a whole the Democrats have been lately, and I understand that completely. And I'm in the same boat. I, I'm in the same boat as they are, and I want to change my registration but the problem is is that the way that the power structure is set up in terms of which political parties have power benefits the two major parties and it benefits them in a way that it makes it almost impossible for you to have any kind of meaningful voice in the electoral process unless you're registered as one of the two uh, with one of the two parties. You know, for example, in Kentucky, you have to be a registered Democrat to vote in the Democratic primary. You have to be a registered Republican to vote in the Republican primary, whether you're talking about countywide races or for the presidential primary here next year. So, I don't know. I am seriously thinking about leaving the Democrats to register as an independent. However, if I can have a say in who ends up being the nominee for the Democrats in a certain race and there's an opportunity maybe to influence it in a way that makes it more likely that a progressive candidate will win that I might stay on who knows that um, if people ask me what my political registration is yeah I, I tell them that I'm um, either tell them that I'm an independent who's registered as a Democrat or I just tell them I'm a pissed-off Democrat which both of those things are true <laughs> and you know, Maybe you all feel the same way. Maybe you don't. Maybe you are not as fed up with the Democrats as I am. That's, you know, everybody has their own take on it, but that's just where I'm coming from on this point. And which is why I wanted to bring up the whole, um, oh, look, if Biden doesn't run, we can just run Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris, because that will absolutely end well, right? Um, but anyway, that's enough, that's enough for my sounding off on national politics. We're still a year away from the presidential race, so I'm going to save all that for later. Um so for this week's episode, I I am so excited to be bringing this discussion to you all. I um, recorded this interview back in January before I came back for school, and I'm now able to publish it as an episode, and it, it's just, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. Um, I was honored to be joined by Aaron Leonard, who is a journalist and uh, author of several books. One of those books is The Folk Singers in the Bureau, The Folk Artists, The FBI, and The Suppression of the Communist Party USA. Aaron wrote and published this, I think, uh, in 2020, and it is a book that covers the careers of various uh, noted and some lesser-known folk artists, people like Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Burl Ives, uh, Lee Hayes, Sis Cunningham, Lead Belly, a lot of different artists, uh, Alan Lomax, all of whom had some kind of connection to left-wing groups in the United States between the 1930s and the 1950s. Many of them were registered members of the Communist Party at the time. Others were just kind of associated with the Communist Party. But one point that Aaron and I make in this conversation is that even if they weren't registered with the party or even if they were registered with the party, They weren't ideologues. They weren't people who were just selling their ideas for the sake of their ideas. They were artists as Aaron points out and One thing that they wanted to do with their art is highlight How high of a human cost the Great Depression had? These are folks who went from town to town all throughout the United States and saw people suffering because of the Great Depression and they wanted to try to make that better, and they thought that the one way to do it would be through working with the Communist Party. Now, they weren't right about everything. They they had some ideas, particularly about how life was in the Soviet Union, that were, were untrue. But that's not the point. And the point isn't even that they were registered with the Communist Party. You may hear that and think, why would anyone ever want to do that? You may be completely dismissive of of the idea of communism, and if you are, you know, that's your right to have that opinion. But instead of just thinking of things in terms of labels, that's something we get bogged down about too much in our political discussions here is we talk about labels instead of ideas and what they mean and the real practical effects of them. You know, we see that with politicians who look at any kind of... this. Harry Truman said this. There are politicians who will look at any kind of program, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing Harry Truman, by the way, but there are politicians who will look at any kind of program or initiative designed to help the poor, and their main argument against it is that it is socialism. doesn't matter if it's actually the true definition of socialism or not, because there is a right and a wrong definition of socialism. But just as in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, up until the current moment, you have politicians who look at programs designed to help the poor, designed to make things easier for workers, and they argue against them by saying, nope, we can't do that. It's socialism. Never give you a definition of what socialism is. They never just talk about the idea in general about what it would mean for people to have universal basic income or universal free health care or paid family leave. They don't talk about the effects of that. They just say, oh, it's bad because it's socialism. And it infuriates me, as I'm, as I'm sure it does many of you as well. And one thing that I wanted to stress in publishing this episode is that we have to get to the point where we don't let labels stop us from considering how we can change things to make them better for workers and for the poor and for the marginalized. And that's what these artists were trying to do. And they did it with a musical form that still resonates with us today. One reason that I wanted to talk to Aaron is that folk music has such a rich history in Appalachia, especially when you talk about songs like Florence Reese's Which Side Are You On, about the striking coal miners in Harlan in the 1930s. Woody Guthrie and, and Pete Seeger really popularized that song, and they themselves were ardent in favor of union rights and, and things like that. So again, they weren't trying to push ideology. They were trying to push ideas that could make things better for people, and for people who had been oppressed and marginalized and put through the wringer of the Great Depression. And that's still our task today, is making things better. Aaron quotes one of my favorite songs in, in this episode. It's called The Worried Man Blues. And Aaron uh, tops off our conversation by you know, suggesting, and and I agree with him here, that the struggle that we face today of trying to make things better, progress isn't a straight line. It goes up and down. Uh, as Aaron points out, but uh, he says that it's a lot like that song, you know, I'm worried now, but I won't be worried long. And I think that is a, an excellent summation of the struggle that we're still in today of trying to make a better world. And that's the struggle that Aaron writes about in this book. Uh, it's a very, very good book. I highly recommend that you read it. If you have any kind of interest in history, in music, uh, it's 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 a really engaging book. And uh, I have included a link to Aaron's website in the show notes, and I think you should be able to find a good place to get that book from. The book is called, again, The Folk Singers in the Bureau, The FBI, The Folk Artists, and the Suppression of the Communist Party USA. That's the subtitle. I don't know if I got those last three right, but that's definitely the title of the book. So uh, it was great talking to Aaron. This was a really great conversation. I enjoyed it, and I hope that you all will as well. Oh, and before I forget um be sure to rate and review the podcast on whatever kind of platform that you use to stream it whether it's spotify or apple or what have you Uh, i'd love to hear from you guys about what you think um, of the podcast where i could improve what what i should do more what i should do less of um don't worry you won't hurt hurt my feelings i just i just want to hear your all's thoughts on it so rate the podcast and leave a review and uh tell your friends about it too um we're we're getting rolling here with season four and we've got some great content coming your way Uh, Thank you all so much again for tuning in, and without further delay, let's get into it. There we go. Well, uh, Aaron, thank you so much again for uh, joining the podcast today. I uh, as I told you just now, I've been very excited to talk to you about your book, very excited to have a conversation with you. Um, I highly enjoyed the book as well. And so before we get started, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners, um, talk about your background, uh, your experience writing the book, why you decided to write it. I know you said it's been out for a while, but uh, and anything else that you'd like to say, uh, go right ahead. The floor is yours.
1: Oh well yeah thanks thanks for having me on. Uh I'm a author living out here in uh, Los Angeles, rainy Los Angeles at the moment. Um uh, I've written uh, several books now. Initially the focus was on um the uh, radicalism of uh, Maoist forces in the uh, uh late 60s early 70s, particularly the Revolutionary Union/Revolutionary slash Revolutionary Communist Party. But, you know, after doing two books that uh, focused on that and and some other radical organizations, I had wanted to write a book about radical, well, musicians in the 60s and the the repression they encountered. Uh, When I started to try to do that, um, I was not finding the kind of FBI files I needed to actually make a book come into focus you know, I've since actually returned to that project, uh, but I'll return to that, uh, talk about that in a second. But, you know, in the course of researching the book, I read this book by Sean Willens, Bob Dylan's America, and he had almost a passing description of Woody Guthrie and his radicalism. I was vaguely aware of Guthrie, but not uh, a deep Guthrieite. But then as I read Willens and looked into it a a little bit, it it, uh, became clear Guthrie was a communist or at least a a very, very committed uh, fellow traveler. Um, So I asked for his FBI file and it existed. You know, they sent it to me because somebody had gotten it. So I said, that was interesting. I, I knew Pete Seeger had a file, so I asked for that. So that was interesting but then I thought, well, what about these other people in this milieu, people like Alan Lomax and Sis Cunningham and Cisco Houston? And I asked for their files. And sure enough, all of them have files. You know, all these people who are icons of the, uh, you know, the folk, uh, re, you know, it was a, a bit of a, of a coming of age of folk music in the late right. 30s, early 40s. And they all have files because they all have various associations with the communist party. So there was a book there. Uh, and that's how Folk Singers and the Bureau came into focus. Now I've since finished that uh and returned to the sixties book and, and taken a different skew. And that book will be out um, actually next month. But uh that's a matter for another another conversation. Uh so that that's basically how folk singers came into being and you know my writing continues to uh you know look at various different things i'm trying not to just get you know anchored in one particular topic but music has always been a passion and it was a just a very good journey to dig into this folk music and realize how essential it is to some of the best music that that you know was created you know after it and how it's even still being drawn on although you wouldn't quite know it from you know, what's occupying the pop charts these days.
0: <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's excellent. And the book is very engaging. I'm very glad to hear that you're working on a, a new one that will be out next month. I'll have to keep my eyes open for that one. But uh, as I said, Folk Singers in the Bureau is a very engaging read, and it's a, a very important topic to discuss um, in, in itself, but especially so, as you just mentioned. Uh, in our modern context, when you have a group of folks in these in these folk singers, as you mentioned, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Alan Lomax, Sis Cunningham, and and others, uh, uh, Burl Ives and and Lee Hayes, who were at the forefront of this movement, uh, certainly a new kind of music that was emerging in that time, but also at the forefront of a political movement that sought to enshrine. The concerns and the rights and the inherent dignity of people who had up to that point um, been sort of flung to the the far reaches of society you know workers the poor uh, uh, farmers and and so forth and so the way that they expressed those political struggles through their music uh, was really engaging for me to read about not only because I'm a fan of folk music I've been listening to Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie since I was a kid but also as someone who shares those same political ends of uh, you know a more inclusive, more forward-thinking society than we have right now. And so it, it was a very uh, engaging read for me, both in learning about these figures that whom I had known about and whom I had never heard of before I read your book, but also not only in seeing how they struggled for those goals, but also in reading about the uh, just insurmountable almost obstacles that were put in their way through state suppression and surveillance. And that is one aspect of their careers that, you know, a lot of folks on the political left, especially, or, or not even that, but even anyone who has really a passing knowledge of American history at this time with the, uh, the post-war red scare and so forth. And, uh, uh, that kind of time and that kind of feeling, uh, it, it isn't talked about as much in wider circles than that about how, These artists encountered so much uh, suppression for not only the music they were making, but also the political ends that that music was was trying to further. Uh, And so that is one aspect of this book that uh, really stood out to me as well in um, really keeping in mind those obstacles that were faced. And uh, from what I understand of your research, there was quite a bit of material, especially for I think it was Pete Seeger who had what a 2000 page file from the FBI at this time. Uh, in yeah. terms of his political activities and so uh the the if you could talk about the kind of uh, research that you found in that respect and how you know even into like what he got through for example when he was suffering from uh a sickness very late in his life and really wasn't up to much political activity they still had uh surveillance on him because of his you know quote unquote radical ties so uh, if you could speak to that a little bit maybe
1: it's really very you know interesting i mean, there's uh a whole um, uh, perception of what the FBI did under J. Hoover. And it's, uh, you know, there's, the paradox is there seems to be constantly new research into Hoover. Uh, There's a new book called G-Men that's uh, supposed to be the uh, definitive biography of Hoover. But, you know, since uh, times of Watergate and people have been writing about Hoover and you know, there's there's just a whole industry of J. Edgar Hoover as being the uh, the the evil icon of you know the the government. You know what they would call the deep state these days and stuff. But you know, if you actually look at Hoover and the FBI on their own terms, you're actually going to discover things that I think a lot of people miss you know you know the fbi was an integral part of the government you know hoover uh reformed the fbi in the 30s and he worked closely with uh franklin roosevelt you know but hoover didn't start this stuff you know right. roosevelt said you know look we uh we might be a war with europe soon you know in europe uh, we have domestic nazis and and they could be a problem. And we have domestic communists and they could be a problem. So he tasked Hoover with creating a custodial detention list. Um, so anybody who was affiliated with these organizations, you know, would go on this list with the idea being in the event of War or some kind of other national emergency, they'd detained, be, be detained. Well, if you were affiliated with the Communist Party, you fell into that category, right. Sis uh, Cunningham was one of the first people to kind of fall into that purview. Uh, she was down in Oklahoma uh, and there was a state raid on the Communist Party of Oklahoma. She was supposed to have been apprehended. You know, but she actually they couldn't find her. You know, she ended up in New York and joined this group, the Almanac Singers with right. Seeger, Seeger and Guthrie. But you know, her and Lomax, Alan Lomax, who uh, most people don't even know was right. probably a Communist Party member. But you read uh, uh, David Dunaway's excellent biography of uh, Pete Seeger, and you know, Seeger says, "Oh yeah." Uh, Allen was was a communist party member but he had to be secret because he worked uh for the Library of Congress he worked right. for the US government um but he was on this list for custodial detention so if you're on this custodial detention list you are subject to the FBI wanting to know where you live you know so that's where these files come from is the I mean a lot of it is just routine you know where does Pete Seeger live? Where does Ellen Lomax live? You know, updating it every six months so that if the the call goes out, they can be apprehended and arrested. You know, this also happens with Woody Guthrie. You know, later into the uh, early fifties, he gets put on the list and stuff. But the FBI is, uh, you know, tasked with you know protecting the integrity of the national security of the United States, and these people are considered you know, potential threats to the, that internal security. So that's where these files come from. And it's an ongoing project. And it's some of it's really kind of mundane. It's not as sensational as some of the stuff that got exposed about Martin Luther King, you know, the right. FBI secretly wiretapping him in his hotel rooms and things like that. Uh, but it, it's ongoing and it, and it it goes on for decades. And once you're on these lists, uh, it keeps happening. And that's that's where these files are. And then within these files, you find uh, informants, you know, sitting in meetings, you know, telling what people are talking about and stuff. So my point is that if you take the FBI on their own terms, what they're actually trying to do, you know, you're going to uncover this wealth of stuff that largely gets missed, you know, because, uh, because the mythology of what the FBI is doesn't quite reconcile with its actual mandated task. Uh, And for these artists, it's highly consequential because uh, it means they're, um, you know, constantly in the uh, spotlight, you know, of of, uh, intelligence forces and stuff. And then there's this extra... you know these these institutions beyond the FBI, like this this group Counterattack, which is monitoring them in the private sector. Right. You know the private sector can do things the FBI can't, and they literally create a book, you know, with the names of people like Seeger and Lomax, uh, that's circulated widely widely throughout U.S. society. Um, it's called uh, Red Channels. Right. It is one one thing I discovered is uh. Ed Sullivan, you know, the the famous uh, variety show host, had a column in the Daily News. um, And before Red Channels was published, the day before, he says, oh, this great thing is coming out. uh, And it's going to go into uh, all these commies, and it's going to be a real problem for them. Oh, wow. This is is Ed Sullivan basically saying this is a great thing that's happening. Right. My next book actually gets more into how... uh, you know, he was a, a gatekeeper for a lot of people, like Harry Belafonte and Bob Dylan. You know whether or not they would appear, or not appear, and stuff. But uh, so there's a element of the private sector, you know, targeting these people as well. A bit of a of a uh, a rambling answer, <laughs> but it's it's like uh, once once you uh, kind of look at the FBI on its own terms, you discover why they were after these people, and it's counter to the notion that. I mean, a lot of the way this gets framed is innocent people who innocently go to a demonstration and they're targeted. Well, you know there's some of that, but you know the you know these people were committed to a whole different world. They thought this communist party had some answers right um, They were not Politburo members or central committee members. they were not ideologues; they were artists. Right. you know they had a basic sketch of what this party stood for. They thought there was a model in the Soviet Union that was a better society and it seemed an alternative to depression era uh, United States. Um, you know, they were incorrect on a number of things, but um you know they they um they aspired towards something better. Uh and the party, you know, seemed to have hold that held that out. Um, And, you know, as a result, they had a relationship. So to act as if that didn't exist, which is a lot of what what happens and, you know, a lot of it is. Important, you know, I mean, if you were uh, openly associated with the Communist Party from 1949 up until 1991, that was going to be a problem. So keeping this secret, you know, there was a material basis for it, but but that's over. You know, and I think uh, it needs to be discussed. You know, openly for what it was to to actually try to understand it better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you further that conversation very well through the book, and uh, especially so given how, as you just mentioned, uh, well, one thing that a lot of folks, unless they really dig into the history of the country during the depression, as as I have, uh, it, as as well as I can. I'm not a trained historian or anything, but I've I've read a lot about it and. Uh, one aspect of it that is often missed, I think, is how the morale collectively of the population at the time of the Depression, especially in the, the deep throes of it, was that uh, the economy and the country along with it was on the verge of a complete and total collapse or transformation. You know, there's a famous quote from Roosevelt when he is told uh, by an observer that if he succeeds in re, rem, uh, his ameliorative efforts towards the depression, he'll be remembered as our best president. And if he fails, he'll be remembered as our worst president. And Roosevelt told that person, no, if I fail, I'll be our last president. And so there there was, because of the just just deplorable economic conditions that so many people were facing, there was a concern that uh, or the country was on the verge of total collapse, but there was also a great uh, yearning for something better, as you just said. And I think that one of the most important aspects of these artists is that, as you said, they weren't ideologues. It's it's not that they were one into the Communist Party through their reading of just strictly through their reading of theory. They were workers and folks on the road who went to these communities and saw all throughout the United States the real human cost of the Depression and from there, reason towards a better world that could be created. And that is something that I think is important to discuss because it, it, it takes the conversation about the uh, ideas that these folks had in terms of a better world based on egalitarianism based on justice. It, it takes all the the partisan divide and the, the east-west divide that is so often framed on the Cold Wars, uh, and this time period is capitalism versus communism the united states versus the ussr and it takes all of that away and just gets down to how you know these are people who saw the human cost of the great depression who saw the human cost of unfettered greed of unregulated um power and influence of the 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 ruling class and wanted to change that and change it for the better and i think that's a really important part of their legacy that you that you discuss very well in the book and uh, especially so in communities uh, in, in Appalachia, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because folk music is been a very big part of Appalachian culture uh, since the, from the earliest times that folks have been living here. And uh, the songs of a lot of these artists, particularly which side are you on, which I think was um, uh, made most famous, probably by Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger uh, First, well, first of all, it mentions my my home county, so I've, I've always been proud of it for that reason, but also because it captures the real question that a lot of folks had to ask themselves in the not just the political arena, but elsewhere in that whether we were going to create a society for the betterment of the wealthy and the privileged or whether we were going to create a society for the betterment of workers and the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed and the importance of using music as a way to win people over to that vision of a better world, regardless of their ideologies and so forth, but in a way that uh, united everybody around that common goal of creating something better. Uh, Music has always been a really important way to carry that message forward. And uh, as you detail in your book, the response to their wishing to propagate that message was uh, surveillance and and, 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 um being blacklisted from working in their industry and uh, i know this goes a bit beyond the scope of your book but this extended not just to musicians but to screenwriters and actors and, and other folks as as well and so there was a real and tangible consequence to standing up for these better ideals uh, during this time and and that's something that is not as discussed nowadays that i think we do need to be talking about a bit more
1: yeah it's uh you know it's very interesting i think it was. Florence Reese, who right. wrote, the "Site are you on?" Uh, but uh, uh, Seeger really uh, animated it and, and popularized it. Yeah, I was reading through. Uh, I have this terrible habit of reading through some of the comments and on, on my book and various websites. And and one person, uh, he took issue with one of the conclusions I made. Was um, these people would not have even been in the same room? People like. Josh White, Paul Robeson, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, uh, uh, Bess Lomax, they wouldn't have even been in the same room, let alone making music together, had it not been for the communist party. Right. Uh, and the, and this commentator said, well, no, no, come on. You know, these, these people were great artists and, you know, they would have found their way. Um, but it is, uh, you know i I think that's you know i I stand by my summation. It's like in the forties and fifties, you know who is standing against the oppression of black people? who is saying black right. and white people ought to work together? who's saying uh whites, Protestant whites and Jews should work together right you know not too many people you're sticking your neck out in jim Crow uh Ku Klux Klan America. You're taking a huge risk. Um, and you need something more than personal courage. Personal courage will take you so far. And all of these people, like again, sis Cunningham was just adamant about um, allowing black people uh, the same rights as, as white people. And right. this is like you know, decades before a decade or so before uh, King and the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, there's a reason a lot of African American people were attracted to the Communist Party, you know I mean some of it was uh you know you know the the whole program of socialism, but a lot of it was their bedrock stand against um, you know racism essentially exactly. uh but you know you need a vehicle to do this, you know uh and, and this this is what it was. Was And as a result, you have all these influences to coming together, you know, mixing together and influencing one another. And then they're excavating this whole canon of music. I mean, Alan Lomax uh, and his father, John Lomax, I guess John Lomax is much more conservative and Alan is more uh, radical, radically inclined. He was in school, I think it was Harvard College, where he met party people and became more uh, partisan and stuff, but they went through the South, you know, going to workplaces and prisons. You know, right. this is where they meet Leadbelly, you know, who you know famous song "Good Night Irene" and "Rock Island Line," and you know they bring Leadbelly north. I mean, you know, in, in hindsight, the relationship is not, uh, um, you know, it's it's fraught. It's fraught with the. Uh, with the mores of the time, you know, but, but they do bring him forward and they introduce him to the wider world. Right. And it has a profound impact. I, I have this quote, uh, George Harrison. I mean, John Lennon famously said, no Elvis, no Beatles, which I'm not a big Elvis, uh, evangelist. Uh, you know, that's another conversation. But, right.
0: I got gotcha. you,
1: But, uh, George Harrison, makes this point which i think is deeply profound he says well you know no lead belly no lonnie donnegan who had a hit with rock island line and no lonnie donnegan no beatles right you know similarly no woody guthrie no bob dylan you know there's a continuity and this kind of goes to folk music in general is like uh you know humanity produces these songs exactly uh, and they get better generally they get better right you know i mean there's i, I know I as i was in a graduate school course and seems the currency to say you shouldn't look at history as progress and I, and I think i mainly reject that it's like i think things do get better which is not to say they get better in a straight line they get better in a very uh convulsive right. manner or you know i think mark said you know it's uh, there, there's class struggle, which either leads to one class overcoming another or the mutual ruination of, of both, you know, right. is, I mean, it is possible to, to ruin that, the whole thing, but I think with folk music, generally speaking, you know, it gets enriched and passed along. And I think that's what these folk singers were doing in their time. They were doing what they were supposed to do, you know, and uh, it's a, it's a gift they left us, but they it was a gift they left us through a tremendous amount of pushback and struggle, uh, personal courage, facing jail, facing uh, being blacklisted, and, you know, and all these things, you know, and driven to despair. Uh, you know, it, it's not an easy road, as, as there's this line, so Buju Bantan song from the early 90s. It's not an easy road. Yes. I- I'm not sure where that phrase comes from, but that's what it was for them.
0: Right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, I think that, you know, as music was used as a vehicle back then, specifically the music of these artists was used by them as a vehicle to, you know, as we've been saying, not push an ideology um, for the sake of ideology, but to push an ideology, which, they thought would lead towards a better world. I, I I think that in my view, you see a lot of that today with uh, some contemporary um, alternative country and, and folk artists today who, uh, you know, just from my experience, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with uh, Tyler Childers and Sturgill Simpson, but, you know, they have music that on its face is not uh, with a couple of ex- exceptions, I think is not, uh explicitly or overtly political, but when you, you know, listen to the songs 10, 12 times or or even three or four times, I'm I'm a huge fan, so I listen to them more than that a day. But uh they have songs that I think you can find interpretations of their music that are, again, not pushing an ideology, not pushing a party line, not pushing for folks who listen to their music as a lot of people do here in eastern Kentucky and elsewhere not pushing for them to vote a certain way but pushing for them to in their own way however they can make possible a better world based on justice based on helping people who have been knocked down and forgotten you know both of those artists that i mentioned are from eastern kentucky and one thing that you see in a lot of folks here is that regardless of what their party registration may be uh, you can find broad agreement that you know communities like these have been uh As similar to communities, not just in Appalachia, but across the country, have been left behind because of their uh, lack of, uh, if they can't deliver the votes that are needed for a certain representative or a certain uh, governmental official, then they're they're of no real value. And so they uh, have been forgotten in a lot of ways. And you find a lot of agreement from folks here that they've been forgotten. And it's the music that, when you listen to it today, is really pushing for that Same message of people creating for themselves a better world that I think has a lot of power today as well.
1: You know, it's really interesting. Uh, I was looking at all these artists, and uh, I think I came away with my two favorite uh, artists artistically are Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly. Right. Uh, And I think both of what, and Guthrie is. You know, Guthrie is a pretty savvy guy. I mean, he has these arguments with people. He wants to write timeless songs, which, you know, nothing is, timelessness is a relative matter. But there's a reason that Guthrie's stuff stands up. I mean, I, I think probably the best example is uh, I Ain't Got No Home. I right. mean, it's just universally applicable. Uh, but, you know, he and the others were also capable of doing some pretty uh Pretty partisan stuff that it's basically agitprop. Uh, there's, there's this song Guthrie does during World War II, "Fell by Your Gun," about the Russian sniper woman, right. you know. Which you know, <laughs> it's just not something you're going to queue up on the way to work anymore. Right. You know? It's very much, a, you know, of its of its time. But you know, Seeger too. I mean, Seeger, the best stuff by him isn't the topical stuff. Um it's the stuff that's more like Jesus. There's this recording of Seeger on Johnny Cash's show doing um oh gosh, I'm I'm having a mental slip, but it's um uh it takes a worried man to say right a worried, worried man song. blues, yeah, yeah. Yeah, God, and I he love that boy, song. he gets the whole crowd going. Yeah, yeah. But it's a wonderful song. Absolutely. It's like it's like the human condition, you know, of being in chains. You know, I'm worried now, but I won't be worried long. It's right. like, you've got to look to tomorrow. I mean, that's the thing with art, right? Art shouldn't be solving political theoretical problems. It should be, you know, elevating humanity. You right. may posing some sharp uh, conundrums and things like that. But sure. I, mean, I read a recent comment by Dylan saying, oh, they say, well, what about music to change the world? And he says, oh, yeah, I tried that. You know, it didn't work. <laughs> um, and yet and yet, some of those songs, you know, like blowing in the wind, times they are changing or even better, ship comes in or "God right. on our side, they do stand up. Right. They do have a universality. But no, uh, if you listen to a song and then you decide – Oh I'm gonna go join the Communist Party some something's wrong with you, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right you know that's that's superficial but but music does play a role. I mean, I read this quote by Phil Oakes of saying, you know, to paraphrase the artist should be ahead of his time, you know in, in really kind of pushing the limits and such and and it's not just pushing the limits politically, it's pushing the limits of uh, you know, uh, demanding life right. in its fullness, uh, which a lot of the current contemporary situations, people are forced to, to deal with less. Right. And that's become the, uh, you know, that's become the, uh, the bedrock and, and it's wrong, you know, exactly. you don't get to be alive very long. Right. And, and everybody ought to have the opportunity to thrive. Right. You know, I mean, of course, theoretically, you can say that, and it's it's absolutely not possible. But but it ought to be the aspiration. And I think a lot of these artists, to the degree the people we're talking about, to the degree they got that, that's that's why we still care about them. You know, they're not just historical relics. It's not like excavating Civil War songs or Spanish Civil War songs. Right. You know, they talk about particular battles and stuff, but more general, universal. Our concepts.
0: I, I agree with you completely there. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, we have just a few minutes left. I, I just want to thank you again so much for being on the the show today. And thank you for writing this book. Thank you for the work you've done. This has been a great conversation. And I just want to give you these last few minutes to say anything you'd like to uh, close us out. Anything you'd like at all the floor is yours.
1: Well, well, thanks. So, you know, it's it's a fun conversation. It's kind of the book came out in September 2020. So it's good to kind of refresh myself on it. And uh uh in on Valentine's Day, I'm coming out with Whole World in an Uproar, which kind of picks up where this leaves off. I go from 1955 to 1972, what historians refer to as the long history, uh, excuse me, long. Sixties, so it it picks up on that, and there's a fair amount of FBI files that I drew on, particularly in the first half of the book. But then, the pushback that comes later is more systemic, from the status quo, the media, uh, government agencies, you know, different high-profile personalities. Um, so, you know that that's forthcoming. So I think if if your listeners have read folk singers. And the Bureau, they'll probably have an interest in whole world in an uproar. I, I actually got uh, Bob Dylan's first girlfriend, Susie Rotolo. She's on the cover of a Freewheeling. I got her FBI files. So there's some curious things about Dylan in there. But I think the point is, is the story continues. Right. And it continues past the 70s into, uh, you know, our contemporary era where we are confronting, you know is this all there is or can we get something better? Because I think that's, that's a question humanity confronts, you know, and do we even have a world? And, you know, I think as long as we're taking breath, we need to be answering those questions and attempting to, or posing those questions and attempting to resolve them, answer them positively.
0: I think, I think you're exactly right. Uh, that uh, it's, it sounds like a great book that's coming out here soon. I'll, I'll have to keep my eyes Uh, open for it. Uh, Looking forward to reading it. Uh, Aaron, again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being on the podcast. And uh, I really appreciate it. You're welcome on again, anytime. And thank you very much.
1: Okay, well, thank you too. It's good, good, good to meet
0: Well, y'all thank you so much for tuning in for this week's episode I hope that you enjoyed it and thank you guys for everything that you do to support the podcast in whatever way that you do I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you so thank you if you like that music that you're listening to in the background that is a piece called In the Sweet By and By by a great artist named Zechariah Hickman and you can find him on YouTube be sure to check his channel out be sure to follow the podcast on social media for all of the updates going forward it's at app firesides on Facebook Twitter and Instagram Make sure to join us next week for another installment of our Sights to See and Places to Be in Appalachia series. And be sure to join us the following week for another full-length episode. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.